Welcome to week seven of EW's Binge of Harry Potter. I'm Molly Smith. And I'm Mark Snedeker. And it's week seven. Man, I can't believe we're here already. We are already into Deathly Hallows. It's nuts. It's insane. Yeah. This movie opened in theaters November 19th, 2010. But the book came out July 21st, 2007. I mean, it was quickly my favorite book. I was just very quick to sort of say, yep, everything happens in this. And thank goodness they split it up into two movies. Because they had to. They, there was no way because everything is connected. You know, you had to explain one thing to get to another to get to another. It had to be two parts. Yeah, I thought this film was, was perfect. Um, it could have been a lot of sitting around on campsites, which it kind of was. But it, you never felt like you were just sort of lingering as you could have. It was no fox catcher. Yeah, it was sitting around at campsites with purpose. Yeah. Um, so this movie, part one, grosses $330 million, which is the third highest in the Harry Potter series. The ones above it were Sorcerer's Stone and Deathly Hallows part two. So that's interesting. I guess this one kind of counts as like the end, too. But That's interesting, though, that Sorcerer's Stone is up there as one of the highest grossing. Is it? I think it's pretty... I mean... I guess it makes sense because it's the beginning and people want to know what it's all about. But that said, I would imagine that there are so many more fans that came into the series as it went on that you would think that I I would think that some of the later films would be higher grossing. Yeah. Well, anyway, Deathly Hallows Part One is all about I don't want to say the setup. You know, I don't want to say it's like the exposition because it's more than that. But uh, it's sort of it really is. It's the setup for the finale and before everything explodes and everything goes wrong. But plenty goes wrong in this movie, although we're not talking about disasters. Uh, today, we're going to go through the 10 campout, hiding, secret locations, some more secret than others, some not so much at all, and some, like, <laughs> we never go to again. They don't exist after <laughs> after they visit there because they blow up. But um, 10 locations in Deathly Hells Part 1 as Harry, Ron, and Hermione ditch Hogwarts for year seven to go track down the Horcruxes and defeat Voldemort once and for all. And we also have an amazing guest today, Ben Hibben. He animated the fantastic Deathly Hallows sequence when Hermione's narrating, um, and you get to know the Elder Wand and Resurrection Stone and Cloak of Invisibility, how it helps one defeat death. So stay tuned as we go on a journey through Deathly Hallows Part 1. Our first destination that we're going to chat about um, is kind of a, a farewell, a goodbye to childhood homes and, and memories of yesterday and cupboards under stairs and all that jazz. The first place is Privet Drive slash, you know, Hermione's house, because um, everyone's preparing to, to, to go away. Hermione obliviates her parents' memories. Which I feel like doesn't get enough attention. That's devastating. Yeah, like she not only obliviates their memories, but like the photos go straight up back to the future. Fun fact, Michelle Fairley, Catelyn Stark from Game of Thrones herself, played Hermione's mom in the movie. Love it. But anyway, so Hermione leaves. That's super depressing. So we pick up on Harry's story as the Dursleys are preparing to leave Privet Drive, um, seemingly overnight, as the threat is just too great and Petunia and Dudley and Vernon are all pretty upset to have to go. In the book, there are some relatively sweet goodbyes. I guess only between Harry and Dudley. They sort of shake hands, and, and we'll, we'll find out later on that they did stay in touch. They sent each other Christmas cards. But I'm pretty sure Petunia and Vernon, that, that just uh, they never talked to them again, I don't That's think. That's just so awful, but not unexpected. Yeah. 
But so anyways, um, so they're at Privet Drive and then the Battle of the Seven Potters kind of kicks into gear. Um, basically, a bunch of members of the Order and Hermione and Ron and all these people are there and they're going to take Polyjuice Potion to look like Harry to help him get out of there. Yeah, they want to prevent any Death Eaters from seeing the real Harry, which is kind of a beautiful mirror of, um, you know, Harry splits himself into seven, just like Voldemort split himself into seven for Horcruxes, but Harry split himself into seven out of love, you know, out of people willing to take on a part of his soul, if you will. I mean, that's a little bit of a stretch of of a nice gift wrap theory. I think it's totally fair. I mean, in, in this movie and book, Ron says that this is so much bigger than Harry, but it also is still very much about Harry, and I think that's a really good point, that his seven Harrys like the seven Horcruxes. Yeah, and you know he is so always reluctant to let people kind of take a bullet for him or put themselves in danger. But nevertheless, um, everybody pairs up with, like, a fake Harry and, like, a mode of transportation. So you've got (laughs) Harry and Hagrid on a bicycle, or on the motorbike, George Weasley and Remus Lupin on broomsticks, a bunch of others on broomsticks, Hermione and Kingsley on a Thestral, like... Are we sure Hermione, like, really did see death? Like, I mean, I guess there were so many Avada Kedavras going around in the book five. But, I mean, she didn't see it before, and she rode the Thestral when they went to the Ministry. Yeah, and I'm sure that was traumatizing for her. Yeah, for sure. Um, Anyway, the kind of the two to talk about are, well, there's there's a bunch. Um, There's George Weasley and Remus Lupin on the broomstick. Um, George loses an ear because he gets cursed. There's Mundungus Fletcher and Mad-Eye Moody, uh, and Moody tragically dies in this battle, which, I don't know, I mean, did you find it tragic? I found it upsetting, mostly because of how shady that all was, but I was certainly affected by the death of Mad-Eye. I mean, at the same time, you feel somewhat disconnected, because as you said when we were talking about Goblet of Fire earlier, you know, we didn't really know the real Mad-Eye. Right, That that's why I don't think it was, like, ever that tragic, because, like, the whole Mad-Eye we came to love is, like, never the Mad-Eye that died. Right, but that said, it's really unfortunate the way all of that went down, because basically he was paired with Mundungus Fletcher, who we already know is a shady character, but he really shows his true shady colors when he apparates out of there because he freaks out when the Death Eaters drop in. Um, So that happens, and that's awful. But to me, even more awful is when Hedwig flies in to try and save the real Harry and gets killed. Yeah, so that's the third one to talk about is Harry and Hagrid on the motorbike. Hedwig, you know, it's sad. Like, this was certainly sad. But at the same time, Hedwig could not have lived in this book. Hedwig could not have been flying around while the kids were off camping and and looking for horcruxes. It's just there was no other way but for Hedwig to die. And actually, there is a theory out there that a Tumblr user posted last year, I remember, that said the Death Eater who actually killed Hedwig in this battle was Snape because he, quote, uh, he killed Hedwig so the other Death Eaters in Voldemort wouldn't know it was Harry, and he was actually trying to protect Harry the whole time. So some people say, oh, Hedwig gave you away, but maybe it was actually Snape, you know, who had to prove his himself. And, you know, you can kind of kill the owl. Like, it's sort of, it's fine. I mean, out of all the deaths, and there certainly are many, it's not the worst, but it's still, it's still sad. Yeah. It's still pretty rough. And I mean... She didn't even have any lines in the movie. Right. But like, in Order of the Phoenix, Harry says that Hedwig was the only friend he had at number four, Privet Drive, so it... It feels Aww. very sad to me. He's leaving Privet Drive and his only friend yeah. dies. Poor Hedwig. Poor Hedwig. It's not like she went, you know, J.K. Rowling can't give us like, Hedwig went on to be Owl of the Year <laughs> in 2010. Like, she can't do any of that with this. So, 
Poor Hedwig. But we arrive at place number two in Deathly Hallows, part one. The next place is the burrow, where a few things happen. You know, everybody recoups, and turns out we're spending the rest of the summer getting ready for a wedding. The last happy moment before a series of progressively more unhappy events. And even then, like, that wedding's not... Not as happy as it could be, but uh, let's let's unpack this a little bit first. Um, basically, they get to the borough, and Minister of Magic Rufus Scrimgeour shows up to read Harry, Ron, and Hermione Dumbledore's will. You know that was actually a fun surprise. You kind of forget. Oh wait, like there's there's going to be some Dumbledore in the, in this business. So Scrimgeour comes, and Harry had actually met him before uh, in Book Six. He meets him to kind of get him to explain Dumbledore's actions after Scrimgeour replaces Fudge as Minister of Magic. But in the movie, this is really the first time you're necessarily seeing them um, really interact. Harry never aligned himself with him. He did not like Rufus Scrimger. He did not believe the ministry as it stood now was any different than Fudge's ministry. Um, everything is just about appearances. And they wanted Harry to align himself with them. He did not want to. And so there is a little tension when he does arrive to read them the will of Albus, Percival, Wolfric, Brian Dumbledore. Say that five times fast. APWBD. <laughs> what would APWBD do? Exactly. So uh, in this will, um, the ministry had been sitting on it for like a month. Essentially, all of Albus Dumbledore's books and magical instruments and all of that was left to Hogwarts and Hogwarts archives. But three students got some other stuff and... The ministry is super um, concerned about it because why would Dumbledore... They don't realize the relationship that he had with with these kids. So literally in their mind, in the ministry's mind, the dead legendary headmaster just dropped some artifacts and some like weird nonsensical things like a book to... (laughs) Not that a book is nonsensical, but you know what I mean. (laughs) Um, Insignificant things like a book and a snitch uh, to kids. So And don't forget about the deluminator. And the Illuminator, a piece of trash toy that does lights. (laughs) So after they inspect it all for dark magic, they give it all to the kids. And who gets what? Well, Ron gets the Deluminator, um, which is kind of fun because it's a throwback to Sorcerer's Stone. When it was called the (laughs) Put-Outer. So like Jacob Rowling got a little wiser to, uh, (laughs) oh, I might need to do a better name for this. Then he leaves Hermione his copy of the Tales of Beetle the Bard, um, hoping that she finds it entertaining and instructive. And for- I, I don't understand why he didn't just leave her, like, a Wikipedia article about Deathly Hallows. Do you know what I mean? Like, Because the ministry is everywhere. They're watching, and he had to be sneaky. But it, wouldn't it have behooved the quest for the ministry to be aware that Voldemort was looking for the Deathly Hallows? I mean, the ministry's bad. Yes, of course. But like, what would be the worst thing? They realize, oh, he's looking for this. And then they would help out. I don't know. Like, whatever. I just... I I think he didn't want want to run the risk of tipping off the Death Eaters and Voldemort. That Harry was onto him and trying to take him out. Although I'm sure he knows he's trying to take him out, but he doesn't know that he knows how to do so. Fun fact, Hermione's middle name was supposed to be Jane, but um, J.K. Rowling never revealed that until she introduced Professor Umbridge, who was Dolores Jane Umbridge, so Rowling decided to change Hermione's name to Hermione Jean Granger. Oh, that's interesting. Fun middle name fact for you. Then for Harry, Dumbledore leaves him the snitch that he caught in his first Quidditch match, hoping that it's a reminder of perseverance and skill. Yeah. This is another interesting idea. You know, the ministry had been inspecting these things for significance and value, and Scrimger believes something is hidden in it. But, like, how hard is it really to open a snitch? You know, like... 
if you don't got those Potter lips, it's hard. <laughs> so, oh, my so God. Weird. That is the sentence of the podcast. <laughs> Thank you, Molly. Um, so it leaves the snitch. I open it to close, uh, which I got to say, for the longest time, I kept forgetting what that meant. Like, when I kept rereading the book, I probably read Deathly Hallows 50 times, but the first, like, 10 times, I was like, wait, what's in the snitch? <laughs> anyway, I'm an idiot. And then Dumbledore also bequeaths the Sword of Gryffindor, which Scrimger says, one, you don't, it's not his to give you because you, he doesn't own it, it's a historical artifact, and two, nobody knows where it is. But, I mean, I kind of believe that Dumbledore never, you know, Dumbledore knew that. Dumbledore wasn't a dumb guy. He, he knew it was probably not his to he own. He wasn't actually giving it to him. I think that was his tip-off of how to defeat these horcruxes. Right. It was the only kind of symbol he could give, you know, giving, leaving a little clue. So with that in mind, the kids are a little confused. Scrimger goes off back to the ministry. And then the next day, he dies. He gets tortured by Death Eaters. He miraculously does not give up Harry's whereabouts, which is a nice bit of redemption because even though he doesn't trust what Harry's up to, thinking he's colluding on some secret mission with Dumbledore or the dead Dumbledore, Scrimger still kind of keeps Harry's whereabouts to himself, which is admirable. So I I appreciate that. But this news comes on the day of the wedding. So happy day for everyone. Happy day. What is a wizard wedding like, Molly? Well... That dress isn't a traditional dress, I gotta say that, but I like it. Yeah, I mean, dress robes are kind of in play, although they're not as bad as the dress robes from the Yule Ball. (laughs) Yeah, it's no Ron's (laughs) dressing gown. Yeah, there are a lot of old wizards. There's like, you know, a chocolate fountain and lots of stuff. Um, All summer long, the kids are actually working on the wedding and Mrs. Weasley's keeping them all apart because she knows they don't want to go back to Hogwarts and she's like, absolutely not. I'm keeping all three of you apart because I do not need you colluding about this. But the wedding is between Bill and Floor, who met while working in Gringotts. I like them. I think they're a fun, cute couple. Yeah, it's pretty. And then Charlie is the best man. Charlie, the bastard Weasley that we never get to see. (laughs) Gabrielle, Floor's sister, and Ginny are bridesmaids. Um, I guess Hermione did not make the cut. Ooh, you know there had to have been some big, bad bridesmaid yeah. fight there. Like, that's, that, that is sad. But the most interesting thing about the wedding, as as it kind of goes on before it ends, is um, Harry's interaction with two old wizards. This is really different kind of in the movie and in the book, because in the book, Harry learns all about Dumbledore's life through this book Rita Skeeter publishes, The Life and Lies of Albus Dumbledore. But in the movie, we only really get this scene to tell us the history of the Dumbledores, and all that we don't know about Dumbledore and what Harry thinks of him. So the two people at play here are Aunt Muriel, who is Ron's great aunt. We're not sure if she was a Pruitt or a Weasley. Uh, it depends on Molly's mother or father's side. But um, she is Molly Weasley's aunt. Uh, and the other guy is Elphias. I never know how to pronounce it. Like Elphias Doge. Doge. There's the meme online of like Doge. 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 <laughs> so I'm going to call him Elpheus and Muriel, okay? Fun fun little sitcom right there. So the conversation is between Muriel and Elpheus about the Dumbledores. Just some friendly gossip. Elpheus is one of Dumbledore's actually best friends. He's We learned that he was like Dumbledore's sidekick, basically the Ron to Dumbledore's Harry all throughout Hogwarts. And then they were going to take a world tour together, but fate got in the way. And Dumbledore had to stay home because of some some deaths. So I think now is the best time, if ever, to talk about the story of the Dumbledores. So the quick 
version of, of what you need to know about the Dumbledore family. You've got Percival and Kendra Dumbledore. They have three kids. Albus is the oldest, Aberforth is the next, and then Ariana, the only girl. At about six years old, she is attacked by some muggles. Her father, in turn, attacks those muggle boys and is sent to Azkaban. Her mother decides to move the whole family to Godric's Hollow for their protection. But Ariana is so traumatized by the event, um, she was practicing magic when she was attacked, that she's now uncontrollable. Like, she kind of, she can't control her powers. She's still just a kid. So bad things happen. It's a whole thing. And I'd be interested in seeing that backstory. But Kendra Dumbledore decides to keep Ariana sort of in in the basement, like hidden away, not locked up, but hidden away, um, which has people thinking that the mother is crazy and imprisoning Ariana. Essentially, she grows up. At age 14, she has a magical accident and kills Kendra. Albus becomes her protector. But then Grindelwald kind of comes into their lives. He has been kicked out of Durmstrang for practicing dark arts. So he goes to stay in Godric's Hollow with his aunt, Bathilda Bagshot. He strikes up a friendship with Albus. They bond over making the world better and, and doing things for the greater good. Aberforth has a little bit of a problem with that. The three of them get in a duel. And Ariana tries to stop it, but it backfires because she doesn't know how to really do magic. She's killed. We don't really know who was kind of involved in, like, the killing shot, if you will. Yeah, we don't really know who killed her. But that's that. So Ariana dies, and it just tears the Dumbledores apart. Grindelwald flees. His friendship is over with Albus. Aberforth punches Albus at the funeral, breaks his nose, and then they depart. Albus goes on to become Transfiguration Teacher at Hogwarts. Aberforth goes on to run a pub in Hogsmeade. And that's that. That's the story of the Dumbledores. That's sort of an amalgamation of what you learn in the wedding scene and what you learn in the book in The Life and Lives of Albus Dumbledore. But that is what you need to know about the Dumbledore family. That was a really dope recap. I'm spent. I'm sorry. That was my, that was <laughs> my okay? long history lesson. But uh, okay. So Ma- the wedding ends. Ball of light. Ministry magic has fallen. Molly, take us into our next escape. Yeah, there's the ball of light. Death Eaters attack. The trio gets out of there. They apparate into London. Um, and that takes us to location number three, which is a cafe. And they're sort of regrouping, trying to figure out what to do from there. And as they're in there, a couple of Death Eaters walk in and they don't realize at first, but some wands start to come out and this big fight erupts. And the Death Eaters that are there are Raoul and Dolohov. Raoul was one of the Death Eaters who was on the Astronomy Tower the night that Snape killed Dumbledore. And Dolohov... He's got a whole history of like death eating. <laughs> you know what I mean? <laughs> he, his worst crime is that he killed Molly Weasley's brothers. Um, and he's like a career criminal in Azkaban. But he was one of like Voldemort's upper echelon people. He also is eventually the one to kill Lupin, which is interesting here, I think, because the trio managed to sort of get the Death Eaters under control. And Ron... Well, they, obli- sort of, they obliviate him. Right. But before before that happens, Ron sort of toys with the idea of possibly killing him. He says, what if he's the one that killed Mad-Eye? And in the end, Dalhav is the one to kill Lupin. Yeah. I mean, and in the book, he'd rather avenge his uncles over, again, this strange professor. They don't really know. Yeah. It's like, would Lupin have died if they had, I don't want to say stepped up to, to kill somebody. But, you know, I, I think I've said actually throughout this, this uh, podcast recap that Sometimes Harry's choices to be good get people hurt. And I think that's just a a testament to the nature of 
picking between evils. It's like, do you do an evil thing to stop an evil thing from happening later? Or do you just do the best you can and evil is going to happen eventually? Which I think is probably Yeah, I think the, the thing is, like, always easier to make, like, oh, he should have done this instead of that when you're looking in retrospect, right? But, like, yeah. Harry, just who he is, he has no choice but to be a good person. Yeah, so they obliviate the memories. It's a little interesting. It's a little different in the book because uh, they only show up because Hermione says Voldemort's name. Um, he's got this taboo curse placed on the mention of his name. So they would have actually been fine for a little bit. Uh, you know, they'd changed clothes because Hermione's got this crazy bag extension. She's got clothes for everybody. She's got books. She's got toys. She's, I mean, it's literally just nasty. It's like Mary Poppins times like a thousand. Yeah, and I always wondered, like, how heavy was the bag? Like, did she... It's you know? not actually... The charm that she was using, the extension charm, it makes things bigger and also lighter. Oh, so, can I get that? <laughs> yeah, I, I would like that for my uh, computer bag. Can Thank be, you. Um, I'd like that for me. <laughs> a little bigger, a little lighter. Also, last last fun thing about this little cafe that they're in, <laughs> just because I love the internet, fans have, like, picked apart everything you could see in this cafe, which is called the Lucino Cafe even though it's not really named in the book. You can see its menu. It's an Italian place. It serves breakfast, so that's fun. But the one thing I love most of all is that in this cafe, you can see a poster for a community production of Romeo and Juliet. So, like, confirmed Shakespeare's sighting, Shakespeare exists in Hogwarts. Oh, my God, that's amazing. Yeah, I mean, like, I never doubted Shakespeare existed, but you have to wonder, like, talk about prequels. God, like, Christopher Marlowe, big witch. Yeah. <laughs> Big old witch. <laughs> Moving on, um, the fourth place of escape is kind of the next one they go to, their first home base when they're on the run, which is Grimmauld Place. There's not much to talk about here. It's the first kind of refuge. I love it. It's super cozy. I really, 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 really regret that they couldn't stay here the whole time because it was under protection. The only reason it got blown up because of what happens in a place we're going to talk about in a minute. But, um, you know, this is kind of cozy. They're playing for a release. They're trying to figure out their game plan, which they don't really have one. But they do get a lead when Creature comes in. Um, he's been there. Creature is this nasty house elf, the one that kind of looks a little bit like Steve Buscemi. <laughs> and um, we basically find out that Creature had tried to destroy the locket of Voldemort Horcrux at the request of Regulus Black. But before he was able to, before, I mean, Regulus died, and before Creature was able to destroy it, Mundungus stole it, Mundungus Fletcher. So they have Creature find him, they bring back this pain in the ass Mundungus, and he reveals that Professor Umbridge has the real thing. Which, like, of course Umbridge has it. Right, like, and of course, but it's like, also, it's like, it's not pink, like, what do you want with it, girl? Like, truly. Uh, also, does she know? Do you think Umbridge knew that the locket was Voldemort Horcrux? I'm not sure if she knew, but I think she could probably sense that it was dark magic. Yeah, for sure. for Totally. So that brings us to place number five, which is the Ministry of Magic. This is obviously not a campsite they go to, but you you know at this point in the podcast that I, we don't really care. Yeah. <laughs> Sorry. I think this whole section is really fun. I love, well, basically, so they... This is one of the best action scenes in the whole... I mean, certainly in this movie, this is like a cornerstone, like the Ministry infiltration. But uh, this is just one of those great action sequences that make the book Deathly Hallows so, so, so good. Because mm -hmm. it's just one after the other. Campsite, crazy thing. Campsite, crazy thing. Yeah. Love it. I really like this part because anytime they can mess with Polyjuice Potion, like that's very entertaining to me. Yeah. The rules of which have certainly changed since like 
Chamber of Secrets, it was like, it takes three months. And then <laughs> Mad Eye Moody's like, it takes a day. And, you know. <laughs> but this, they, they stake out the ministry for actually four weeks to find the right people to, to pluck hairs from. Uh, and they do. Right. They do three folks. So the first one we can chat about is Albert Runcorn. Yeah. So Harry's Albert Runcorn. He's a Ministry of Magic employee of high rank during Pius Thickness's administration. And he's a big deal. And he was one who informed on Muggleborn. So he's also just bad. Bad, 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 yeah. but going to lead them to where they need to go. Right. I mean, he's a big investigator of uh, the Muggleborn Commission, um, which is kind of this registration commission that is basically it's it's, it's a Holocaust. It, it's it's an ethnic cleansing of Muggleborns under this regime of Voldemort and Pious Thickness being this imperious minister. Uh, he's literally a puppet. He, he doesn't even have his own mind together. So things are going crazy, and Harry just happens to pluck the hair of this awful high-ranking friend of Umbridge who wears this awful leather suit. <laughs> Hermione is Mafalda Hopkirk. Um, she is played by actually a big British star named Sophie Thompson. Mafalda Hopkirk, <laughs> you will know her name because she was the voice of the Howler in book five when Harry's expelled. It was a different actress, but the, the character is, is the same. She is a worker in the improper use of magic office. She rocks a great wizard lady pantsuit. <laughs> <laughs> like a truly great purple thing. And um, I love her. I like. I would love to just know these three actors. We should have gotten them on the podcast. Like, um, what was it like to play Harry, Ron, and Hermione playing yourself? Super fun. Very meta. But um, yeah, and then the third is Reg Cattermole, who is married with kids. Um, his wife, Mary, is a muggle-born. And she's on trial by Umbridge. And, and Ron is Reginald, which is something we didn't mention. But Yeah, and he's, he's just a janitor. He's in the magical maintenance department. So he it sucks to be a janitor, I guess. But no offense to janitors. We love you. Support our podcast. Like us on iTunes. Yeah, so Mary Cattermole is on trial. And it, it, it's, it's just sort of interesting... Uh, the way they're all just kind of like split up, but also together. Mafalda Hopkirk is in the trial. Runcorn is like, oh, Albert, like, uh, you know, come with me um, from Umbridge. Uh, even though he uh, does break into her office and finds a lot of damning documents that yeah, say... Yeah, he finds all these files that are basically of the order and everybody on the good side. And, and people have their photos crossed out when they've been killed off. And it's like very upsetting yeah. to watch. When he sees Arthur Weasley, I really wish he would just say like... It's it's me. You know, like, why couldn't he have said that and just kind of let him know that we're okay? So everything goes wrong in this trial. You know, Harry's got his whole I must not tell lies thing. And also, like, they just, like, start belting. Like, they stop polyjuicing, which clearly they did not take enough. Yeah. <laughs> um, again, the rules of polyjuice potion are very lax. Very, yeah. I also always wondered why they never just went to get the locket from Umbridge at home. <laughs> like Maybe they thought they could find other things at the ministry like seeing those documents or overhearing conversations or anything like that just like, I mean I it like definitely made for, it harder I would wait for Umbridge to go home I mean she probably has crazy protection yeah like why not just track her to her studio bedroom sorry <laughs> Umbridge you, definitely lives in a studio yeah you know she makes tea in a, in a Murphy bed anyway everything goes wrong they're on the run but they do get the locket so they're on the run they're trying to get out of Ministry of Magic this is infuriating. There's like a moment of comic timing with like Ron, the real Reg Catamore comes and Ron's kissing the wife. And like they're all kind of like standing there giggling. I hate that scene because I'm like everything goes wrong because comic timing. Ha ha. Got to got to delay the scene. Like, Harry, you're literally you look like Harry Potter. You're Harry Potter. And you're standing there like 
For a joke? Yeah, no, I totally it's get stupid. that. I will say, though, I mean, this isn't the best example, but I do like some of those lighter moments that come into this film and book in particular because it is so dark. Like, it is nice to have right. a laugh every, like, yeah. 20 minutes. This was just, like, the worst <laughs> possible moment for Yeah, it. I agree. Uh, and there's there's some, uh, you know, plot happens because of the obnoxiousness of, of waiting. Corbin Yaxley, head of the Department of Magical Law Enforcement, he chases after them, and he's kind of just, like, this generic face bad guy. He sort of looks like a lesser Lucius to me. He is for sure less, less, lesser <laughs> Lucius. Um, that is his drag name. And he grabs Ron as they're trying to apparate back to Grimold Place. Long story short, Ron gets splinched. They go to this sort of spot in the woods to escape. And now we're at uh, number six, which is in my list, it's just called Campsites. <laughs> well, they go to so many places. Yeah, it's like Campsites Assorted. It's like Campsites Part 1. Yeah, so Campsite Part 1, Ron is splinched. Um, that's just when you apparate and you leave some of your body behind, so that's fun. Um, <laughs> so that's Campsite Number 1, okay? And they're setting up this idea that, yep, we're going to be in some campsites in the woods for a while. Luckily, Hermione's brought the amazing tent. It's actually not the worst life in the world. I gotta be honest. You got a nice big tent. You got the extension charm bag. I don't know, man. You could live a nice life as I a hobo I don't want to go Hogwarts. camping for a weekend, let alone for months on end, <laughs> trying to find horcruxes well, and being on the run. I mean, they're basically glamping. If you get rid of the whole horcrux part, they're just glamping, which is glamorous camping. So that's the first <laughs> campsite place. They go to, let's say they go to campsite two, three, and four, and nothing happened. Campsite number five, Harry has a dream about Grigorovich. Um... Voldemort is tracking down Grigorovich, who is this wand maker, kind of the European Ollivander. And he tracks him down because after interrogating Ollivander, it seems like Grigorovich has the wand that Voldemort wants. At the moment, Harry doesn't know about the Elder Wand. He doesn't know, but we do. But Grigorovich doesn't have the wand. And when Voldemort sort of probes his memory, he realizes that Grindelwald is the one that took it. And then he kills Grigorovich. Yeah, so, uh, so Harry has this vision. Um, also, for the record, Grigorovich is the only one who had the Elder Wand who did not have it won from him. It was literally just stolen. So by the whole nature of, like, the wand belongs to the wizard and you got to disarm and this and that, like, it still kind of technically belongs to Grigorovich. Campsite number, let's say, 14. <laughs> we get the moment when Hermione has a run-in with Snatchers. She's doing all those protection charms, and then they smell her perfume. And Harry's, like, really sassy, like, maybe next time don't wear perfume. <laughs> but right. it's possible that perfume was gifted to her by Ron, so. You think Ron got her perfume? I mean, yeah, Ron probably. Ron did get her perfume for Christmas one year, and it's possible that it's that perfume. You, Lord knows she returned it. Lord knows Ron Weasley does not <laughs> understand the scent that she enjoys. He oh, doesn't well, understand the scent of a woman? No, but wait, the scent that the scent that Hermione actually does enjoy, she says in Half-Blood Prince. It's uh, mint? It's like, no, it's like, yeah, it's spearmint, freshly mown grass, and new parchment. Spearmint toothpaste, by the way. So congrats, Ron. If you really got her perfume that smelled like toothpaste and paper, great. You're really going to get in those Ron's robes. such a romantic. Yeah. Okay. So then uh, campsite number 23, we sort of get a moment of the, the anger about the wizarding radio channel that Ron keeps listening to. And this is the beginning of the crumbling of this long period of time. When Ron starts getting really frustrated that they haven't found anything, and he turns to Potter Watch, which is this wizard program that's kind of been hacked on the wizarding wireless network by Lee Jordan and other 
you know, podcasters, basically. These are the truth tellers. They're trying to kind of shake up the climate of panic that's going on. And whether or not you're in the order, you can still listen. You do need a password. So there are some logistics here of keeping secrets that I'm not quite sure were really hammered out. You know, there's no reason a Death Eater couldn't have kind of cracked this because so many people are involved. And But they're basically announcing deaths. They're announcing um, heavy concentrations of Death Eaters and Snatchers. Yeah, and Ron's listening because he wants to hear to make sure that his family members are okay. Basically, he doesn't want to hear the name of anybody who he knows. Yeah, and, and it's all, all the broadcasters are people we know, and they all have code names. There's Lee Jordan. His code name is River. It's Kingsley Shacklebolt, whose code name is Royal. Remus is Romulus, which is a fun little, fun little Rome throwback. And then Fred Weasley is Rapier. So yeah, it's just one of those things that I actually like that they have this nice little radio, but it drives Harry mad because it's like during the election, watching CNN every single day, you kind of like, you watch to be informed, but you also get angry. So, yeah, um, for sure. I mean, but it also doesn't help that Harry, for a good amount of like campsite, however many we've been talking about, um, is wearing the locket, which of course makes people a little more PO'd. Yeah. Which also, that was the whole, there's the whole theory of like, you know, the Horcruxes make you angry. And that's why Harry being a Horcrux made the Dursleys so mad. Like, that's a whole theory that like people love to talk about. Oh. This has no place here right now. But it just doesn't, but that's it. interesting. Yeah. So now with Ron kind of angry, we move on to, you know, campsite number 47. <laughs> He's skipping stones with Hermione and that's a nice deleted scene. Campsite number 48, though, um, Ron's angry again. Harry is getting a haircut from Hermione He's starting to just sort of see cracks. He's getting jealous over nothing. They have that crazy passive-aggressive duel in the woods where, like, they just start, like, just what? Like, what is that? What Like, what is that generic, like, jinx where they're not, we don't, they're not saying a word, but it's, like, it's, I think that's kind of like a little, like, boop. You know what like, I mean? They're basically, like, <laughs> mad booping each other in the woods. Gets a little violent. And then, you know, campsite 99, we get Ron's, yeah, I'm still here. The sword was stolen. Yeah. I'm still here. But you two carry on. Don't let me spoil the fun. What's wrong? Wrong? Nothing's wrong. Not according to you, anyway. But if you've got something to say, don't be shy. Spit it out. All right, I'll spit it out. But don't expect me to be grateful just because now there's another damn thing we've got to find. I thought you knew what you signed up for. Yeah, I thought I did too. Well, I'm sorry, but I don't quite understand. What part of this isn't living up to your expectations? Did did you think we were going to be staying in a five-star hotel, finding a Horcrux every other day? You thought you'd be back with your mum by Christmas? I just thought, after all this time, we would have actually achieved something. I thought you knew what you were doing. I thought Dumbledore would have told you something worthwhile. I thought you had a plan. I told you everything Dumbledore told me. And in case you haven't noticed, we have found a Horcrux already. Yeah, and we're about as close to getting rid of it as we are to finding the rest of them, aren't we? Ron, please take... Please take the Horcrux. You wouldn't be saying any of this if you hadn't been wearing it all day. Do you know why I listen to that radio every night, dear? To make sure I don't hear Ginny's name. Or Fred. Or George. Or Mum. What, you think I'm not listening to? You think I don't know how this feels? Oh, you don't know how it feels! Your parents are dead! You have no family! Stop! Stop! Finally, go! Go then! Yeah, Ryan, he's just just mad. He's mad that Harry has no idea of what to do. He's mad that Hermione seems to be 
spending more time with Harry. And once they finally have this revelation that Godric Gryffindor's sword is uh, what they need to use to defeat the Horcruxes, which, by the way, it took a little too long to figure out, yeah, Ron leaves. You'd, you'd expect more from Hermione. They have this revelation. It's all fine and good. And Ron just is like, I'm done with this. He yells at Harry about the parents dying. Like, you know... That's the it's like that's like the one unthinkable thing you can say to Harry. Right. And that trust. happens a lot. Like between Ron and Dudley, like people are yeah. shady. Like if you want to get under Harry's skin, talk about his dead parents. Ron leaves, there's more campsites that happen, but eventually they do end up in Godric's Hollow, which is location number seven on our list. And yeah. Hermione and Harry just kind of realize we gotta go there. Yeah, Hermione is anxious about going there because she knows it's a place of huge significance, uh, not only because that's where Voldemort was defeated, but because that's where Harry's parents lived and died. And so she expects people will be there. And she's right to expect that. Yeah. So what is Godric's Hollow? Godric's Hollow is sort of one of the most famous locations in the series. I want to say it's your friendly neighborhood town, but it's not. It's actually, contrary to popular belief, it's not an all-wizarding town. The only all-wizarding town in Britain is, is Hogsmeade. But Godric's Hollow was kind of a safe haven for wizard families to go after the International Statute of Secrecy passed in the, you know, late 17th century. Um, a lot of famous people lived here. So, you know, Godric Gryffindor was born there. So that's the biggie. Ignotus Peverell, uh, who we'll talk about just uh, in a couple minutes. He's the youngest brother in the Deathly Hallows tale. He lived here. Uh, he's actually Harry's great, great, great. There's like 700 years worth of greats here, but grandfather. <laughs> um, the Dumbledores lived here. The Potters lived here, as well as Bathilda Bagshot, who is a historian. She famously wrote the textbook, A History of Magic. She may or may not have been a teacher at Hogwarts at some point. That is still unclear, although Hermione does call her Professor Bagshot at one point. But she's important here because uh, she lived there when the Dumbledores lived there. She befriended them, or at least tried to, but Kendra Dumbledore, who was going insane, kind of pushed her away. Uh, Bathilda was also a friend of Lily Potter's. So she's just, like, truly a friendly neighbor. And you got to wonder, like, oh, man. Like, she was at Harry's first birthday, the only one. So you got to wonder, like, I wonder if Harry could grow up with Bathilda Bagshot. What an interesting life that would have been. I'm sure there's fanfic. I hope they're fantastic. <laughs> anyway, Godric's Hollow, it was originally called Dark's Hollow. It was probably the first line J.K. Rowling ever wrote of the series. Not a, not like a note on a napkin, but like sentence. She was writing about Godric's Hollow. So that that's kind of what you need to know. And then Harry and Hermione go here. Beautiful scene. Gorgeous Christmas scene. But it's so uh, nice. then it turns... It's Christmas Eve. They visit Harry's parents' grave. There's a nice moment where Hermione makes flowers and everything. But as they're in this graveyard, they see this looming figure, which is Bathilda. And they're like, well, this is cool because we want to talk to Bathilda, but also like a really creepy situation. Right. Like she doesn't say a word. You're a little smart enough to know, like maybe, maybe investigate. Also, long story short, Bathilda has been dead. Voldemort (laughs) killed her and her body has been cursed to be a home for Nagini. Which it's is just, actually my worst nightmare. It's like it's truly awful. You know how many guys I see on Tinder that I'm like, "Yep, Nagini." <laughs> I bet. I, like, I like how her home has like a perfectly pristine like child's bedroom. Like, that's super creepy. But um, luckily, Nagini's attack is not uh, something that kills them because it very well could have been. It does destroy Harry's wand. But they're able to escape pretty quickly. Sadly, they get nothing out of it. You know what I mean? Like, they don't actually retrieve anything from Godric's Hollow. And it's actually interesting because 
there's still an idea of why didn't he hide a Horcrux in Godric's Hollow? Yes, Nagini was one, but like Nagini didn't just live there like all year long. So like wh- you know, there should like put they should have done like the cup in you know Godric's Hollow. Anyways, yeah, whatever. No. They escape Nagini, Nagini bagshot, and then we're in campsite, <laughs> campsite number seven hundred twelve. But for our list, place number eight. I mean, just campsite. <laughs> it's just like another name. But this is basically. I'm calling this Ron's return campsite. Yes. Because they get back, and um, eventually a couple things happen. Harry has a uh, Harry has a vision. Uh, not a vision. I mean, he sees a Patronus. It's a doe. Turns out it's Snape's Patronus. Mm-hmm. Uh, leads him to a lake where Godric Gryffindor's sword appears. He goes in. Can't get out. Ron saves him. <laughs> Thanks to a little ball of light. <laughs> <laughs> that basically the deluminator, I guess, like led him back. Yeah, but sweet. that whole explanation though about like hearing Hermione's voice and following it and blah blah blah. I'm yeah, just like, was... oh, I'm this is too cheesy for me. Actually, there's a really great YouTube video that um, like auto tuned Ron's like little ball of light speech, <laughs> and it's kind of a good pop song. Actually, I think we have it here. But okay, something I never understood about that scene, and this is small, maybe this is dumb. But why did Harry jump in the lake by himself? He could have gone and got Hermione. Like, it's so yeah. dumb. Like, uh, you're wearing this evil, magical he was object w- around your neck. Maybe he wouldn't have expected that it would try to kill him. But, like, it just doesn't seem like a good idea. Yeah. I think he was maybe worried the sword would disappear again. Yeah, I guess You know, that it's makes like, does the, the sword sense. just wait for you and be like, time's up? Like a, like a power-up in a video <laughs> game. Um, but, yeah, so uh, finally we get to, you know, just Ron and Harry staring down this locket. They got the sword. Harry encourages Ron to, to kill it. Locket opens because Harry parcel tongues it open, um, which I don't know why he never kind of really did earlier. <laughs> like he could have done it well, earlier. I guess because and... they didn't have a means to kill it. Oh, right, right, right. But just like he's like, you to know, get some insight or something. I'm sure at some point he did um, parcel tongue it open. And they probably saw all sorts of other Parcel crazy Parcel tongue and visions. open is not a term I want to hear. <laughs> um, but obviously this is really famous for Ron's like locket vision. Which oh my is, God, this scene is huge. We were better without you. Happier without you. Who could look at you as Harry Potter? What are you compared with the chosen one? Ron, it's not it! Your mother confessed she would have preferred me as a son. What woman would take you? You are nothing. 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 Compared to him. I mean, this was a choice. A lot of of fans hate this scene because... The basically the locket not only does it tell Ron how how crappy he is and how not worthy of Hermione he is and how everybody prefers Harry, but like they went one step further and we get the infamous Harry Hermione 
naked silver ghost makeout scene, <laughs> which is just like, I I mean, I giggle whenever I see it, but like, it was truly like, if you had to pick one single thing that represented the difference between the book and the movie, I would say that this is it, right? Yeah, yeah. There's probably it's, something else. I mean, like, I like it, but I loathe it. You know, it's one of those, I find but, it extremely amusing, but it's also, like, repulsive to me. Totally. Because <laughs> like, they're like sisters. Actually, you know what? Daniel Radcliffe, not, not sisters, like kissing his sister. Yeah. Daniel Radcliffe would give interviews later that was like, oh, I was like kissing my sister. And he actually said, I've just been getting in so much trouble with Emma about this because apparently I said in an interview that she was like an animal. I thought it was going to be a kind of a slow, sensual thing, and Emma really went for it. So I, I got to imagine the conversation where Emma Watson calls Daniel Radcliffe and says, hey, I saw your interview with BuzzFeed. Like, I can't believe you said it was an animal. But I, all in good fun. Anyway, Ron kills the locket, makes up with Hermione, who's really angry, but, you know, Understandably happy. so. Understandably yeah. so. Yeah. Uh, and then they decide to move on to the next place. With Ron back in tow, they go on to place number nine, the home of Xenophilius Lovegood. So basically, Hermione decides that she wants to find out more about the Deathly Hallows. So they go to the home of Xenophilius Lovegood because Harry saw him wearing a Deathly Hallows pendant at the wedding. Um, and so Xenophilius basically tells them all about the Deathly Hallows. So let's first talk a little bit about Xenophilius. Um, he is the super eccentric editor of The Quibbler. It is a tabloid he self-publishes. He publishes conspiracy theories. He publishes discussion of imaginary creatures. So it's just, like, hilarious that they're like, oh, you know what? Like, all these crazy things exist in the wizarding world, but wow, those don't exist. Yeah. You know what I mean? Like, who is to say you cannot be a believer in this world? That's like, ghosts true. exist, dragons exist, but a crumple-horned snorkak doesn't exist? Like, okay, wizards. Like, like just maybe believe him. I think it's a really valid point. Um, I, I don't know if it's necessarily like the National Enquirer of tabloids. It's not like, I mean, it talks about celebrities. I don't celebrities. think it's a step that far. Yeah, like it talks about celebrities, but it isn't like, I don't know. It's like, what is the quibbler? You know, what is the what is the equivalent now of a quibbler? Is it like, it's like those fake links you hear on Facebook. The ones that got Trump elected. Like, it's it's all sorts of just crazy misinformation that's not true that people just see and they believe it's true. The Quibbler's fan base, they just believe every word he writes, even if a lot of it isn't scientific. Right, but proven. I also think it's a little different because I think Xenophilius is just this, like, quirky, kooky guy. Like, whereas, like, a lot of, I don't know, sort of the alternative tabloids that we could like in this, too... I think they're a little more manipulative than he is. Just I think he genuinely like, believes in all of these kind of nutso totally, things. Totally. So he's a fun nutso. He's a single dad. Luna's mom died at age nine. They, you know, Xenophilius gives them the info on the Deathly Hallows. By now, you have to know what these are. But real quick, we'll give you the story of the brothers of uh, the Peveril brothers from the Tales of Beetle Bard. So, the tale of the three brothers. Uh, it's a fairy tale, and it goes like this. Three brothers traveling along a lonely winding road at twilight reach a deep, treacherous river um, where anyone who attempts to swim it or cross it will drown. So, the brothers make a bridge with their wands and cross, and halfway through the bridge, they meet death. He's enraged. He's angry. He comes towards them and congratulates them cunningly. He pretends to congratulate them and gives them each a gift. The first brother asks for a wand more powerful than any other. He wants the strongest wand in the world, so death makes him one. It's called the Elder Wand. He makes it from the branch of a nearby elder tree, 
and gives it to the brother who ends up traveling to a village to go see a wizard that he had previously fought with. He's arrogant. He duels with the wizard and kills him. But then, because he boasted so much of the wand, he's killed in return. And so death takes the first brother. Right. And so the second brother asks for the ability to bring people back from the dead. So he gets the resurrection stone. And using that stone, he brings back a woman who he was in love with, who he wanted to marry, but she died. And eventually he's driven mad, basically, because she doesn't really belong in the real world. She's cold and lifeless, and he kills himself. He takes his own life. To join her. And so death takes a second brother. And then there's the third brother, um, who is the most humble and the most wise. He didn't trust death when he offered these gifts on the bridge. And so he asked for something that would let him go forth without death being able to follow. Death was reluctant, but gave him his very own invisibility cloak, because you know he's got like 10 more from Costco. And then the third brother had the longest life. Um, He was never arrogant about it. The years passed as death searched for him. But the third brother finally gave the cloak to his son when he was ready to go and greeted death as an old friend departing as equals. Which um, I thought was really nice. I like that part of the tale. I would hope so. It's the most like <laughs> beautiful. I mean, it's, you know, it's a classic legendary tale. You know, J.K. Rowling was so smart to just craft this myth that just seems like it's this thing that could totally exist in this world and is born from so many other famous stories And also, just quickly, it's so beautifully done and so unlike anything that we've seen in the Potter universe before. This is the first time that they really depart into full-on animation. Yeah, for for this kind of explanation, uh, these shadow puppets that the film uses to illustrate this tale. So that's the story of the Deathly Hallows. They finally know what they're looking for. (sighs) Just in time for the Death Eaters to come for... The trio, because Luna's been captured. Xenophilius has alerted them that um, the kids are here. Luckily, they escape. But uh, poor Xenophilius, he's uh, shipped off to Azkaban for a hot second. Yeah, they escape. Uh, they operate out of there, and they're back in the woods again. Uh, it's been so long since they've been in the woods. Mm-hmm. Um, but once they get there, they run into a group of snatchers, and they're on the run. And it's another great action sequence of many in part one and two. And they do get caught, but before... The Snatchers are able to get all of them. Hermione curses Harry, so his face basically inflates. And he doesn't look like himself. Yeah, and they're taken to our last place on the list. So we didn't say that there was a place just then because it was it was so quick. But number 10, our final destination, <laughs> literally for some people, Malfoy Manor, where all sorts of stuff goes down. All sorts of people are kidnapped in the basement. So in the basement, we see Ollivander. Luna and Griphook. They're all hanging out there and they've tried I wouldn't all... say they're hanging oh. out. <laughs> okay. <laughs> but they're kidnapped. They're for, for sure hanging out together. Chilling kidnapped. out, Max and relaxing all cool in the basement of Malfoy <laughs> Manor. No, so they're all in the basement. Harry and Ron are down there with them and they are trying to figure a way out. And Harry has this mirror that Sirius gave him and he looks into it and basically asks for help because there's somebody on the receiving end who we don't know at this point, but we find out later. Um, And that person on the receiving end, which is Aberforth, Dumbledore's brother, sends Dobby over to come and help them. Yeah, so now Dobby's downstairs. Um, Meanwhile, Hermione is upstairs being tortured. Um, I like that they're not sure whether the third person with Hermione and Ron is Harry. Like, obviously, who the hell would be with Hermione and Ron? Who's this random person? Even if he were by himself, he still kind of looks like Harry. But it's like, do you think that this 
third person is some random right. guy like a, they picked up along the it's way. It's like a Clark Kent like glasses type scenario. Where totally. Like, oh my totally. god, who is he? Oh my god, puffy eyes couldn't be Harry. And also like okay with but, the Snatchers maybe, but when Draco looks at him and he's like, Meh. well he knew Draco knew it was <laughs> yeah, him. Yeah, I know. But he I purposely just, lied. Yeah. So her mind is being tortured. Dobby comes. There's a the death of Wormtail, which doesn't really happen in the movie, to be honest, but should. Dobby helps them all escape. He apparates Grip Hook, Luna, and Ollivander to Shell Cottage, which is Bill and Floor's home. And then Dobby basically knocks out Wormtail. <laughs> That's easy. Harry and Ron go up. There's a whole skirmish in Malfoy Manor. Poor Hermione. She's got mud blood carved into her arm. It's horrible. Um, and then, yeah, I mean, the the mud, the Malfoy Manor showdown is is pretty intense. Uh, you got to wonder what it would be like if Bellatrix wasn't there. Because I think it'd she be- is the most violent one here, and and the Malfoys could have. But they were also so afraid for their own lives. They they, they wouldn't. There there'd be no compromise. I think Bellatrix is obvious is certainly the one to sort of egg on the violence of the situation. And I think that the Malfoys have their doubts and their cowardice, and I think they would have turned in the trio either way. But you definitely see moments of he- hesitation even here. How Draco doesn't want to say that Harry is Harry. Yeah, you they're know? so scared. They have to. They just there. There's just no other way. They had, they have to turn him in. But anyway, uh, they do escape. Dobby's kind of a badass here, but um, poor Dobby. The, uh, Bellatrix throws her knife just as they're all getting out of there. And the knife goes right into Dobby's little, gross, wrinkly, leathery heart. Okay. And that brings Mark. us to bon- <laughs> bonus <laughs> place number 11, Shell Cottage. Rest in peace, Dobby. Mark, I know you and Dobby have had your differences over the course of this podcast, but yes. you have to admit this is a little sad. Yes. Oh, for sure. I was super sad when this happened in the film because I mean, you'd be heartless to not. You know, no matter what I think about him, I, you know, I still love him. I still love what he does. You know, Harry Harry hugs him. He goes real deep in touching him, which is, you know, you know my thoughts on that. But, you know, he buries him. And, and Dobby, a free elf, loyal to Harry. Oh, like it's it's just it is actually it's really sad. It's sad. Uh, it was the first death that actually really hit me in the book. Yeah. So now Harry is galvanized yet again. But now, as we end this this movie, he has a clear eye for what he has to do. He knows what Voldemort is after. He knows he's looking for the Deathly Hallows. He's got the sword of Gryffindor. He's got Grip Hook and Ollivander at his disposal, and. Yeah, we will see how that goes in Deathly Hallows Part 2. It's a nice little setup for uh, all the many more deaths to come. Yeah, so you can just guess what uh, top 10 we're running through in the next episode. Yeah. But before that, Molly, you had a great interview uh, with this week's guest. I was not able to make this one, but uh, tell us all about it. So yeah, I got on the line with Ben Hibben, the animator of the Deathly Hallows sequence, and he spoke all about his vision, how he realized it, the darkness that he brought to it, comparisons with Voldemort. It's really great. He's great. The sequence is great. And give it a listen. First, I just want to start with, you know, how did you become involved in this project? So... You know, I mean, uh, I, I always kind of tell that that is a story. I mean, there, there is a, there is a, uh, you know, it's that kind of 
that saying that is always an element of you know luck or chance or you know which is such a big part of making movies and i mean i, I guess i guess this was my kind of first-hand experience that's at that saying you know being being so lucky and to be to be at the right place at the right time um and almost kind of like you know when that that moment when the you know the uh, the hollywood or the movie planets kind of aligned yeah i mean it's a very very simple process where the right agents handed the right demo reel to the right producers on the right day you know i mean it's, it's one of the things where right as they uh, were uh, debating on how to tackle the, the three brothers sequence mm-hmm. and kind of planning planning the two movies uh, ahead you know uh, uh, one of the producer um, happened to just really see my reel at that time and uh, Gave me a, they gave me a call. They, they asked me that very redundant question of uh, if I wanted to work on a on a Potter movie. Um, <laughs> and and literally a few weeks later, I was I was kind of meeting with uh, with uh, the director, with David Yates, and with the production designer Stuart Craig uh, in London. So the whole process was was actually very easy and 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 uh, uh, ex- extremely natural. I think we you know we sat down and uh, initially. Um, uh, David and Stuart had done a, um, you know, a very first, you know, initial pass on, you know, possible looks and feels, kind of trying to narrow down something that they liked, and so th- those were shared with me very early on. I had this kind of one meeting when I sat down with David, and uh, he went through some of that. I remember them kind of give me a whole bunch of uh, extremely poor quality black and white photocopies of very kind of crude simple silhouettes you know silhouetted figures and portraits which is kind of cameos and you know all the very 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 early you know um uh, animation and in particular um david uh, uh, spoke uh, very first meeting spoke very passionately about uh the work uh, of uh, austrian-born uh, Lette reiniger um she's kind of like a very famous extremely talented stop, mo- stop motion silhouette animator she kind of made everything by hand you know kind of scissor cutting all the shapes and you know animating it's it's got this beautiful kind of naive but extremely intricate feel to it you know she was working on this animation between you know uh, i think between you know 1920s and 1950s so um it is certainly kind of like a precursor to a lot of uh, a lot of uh, um, very graphical stylized look yeah and so and so they shared that with me and and initially after kind of sitting down with him, you know, and talking about styles and techniques, we kind of like we were very much kind of fantasizing about what uh, an animated Potter world would kind of feel like. And uh, I think we were very aligned. So obviously this conversation went really well. And I basically took that away and then went, went back to them uh, with, you know, more proposals, basically. So I guess just to sort of expand on what you're saying, you know, what was sort of your big idea going into this and what were some of the early creative decisions made that defined how you were going to approach this big task that you had? Sure. Well, I think, again, initially they wanted something, I think what we'd, we'd established is that, you know, the world of, of um, the magic, the you know, the Harry Potter world is already extremely magical and extremely complex and layered and uh, and so, and there are so many, already so many visual languages that are used uh, in every single one of the movies and, and obviously all together. So I think the desire to kind of go back to something simpler, more graphical, uh, I think bolder graphically, you know, a world that was kind of made out essentially of kind of lights and shadows and also something that had a tone or, or recalled, uh, 
you know, the, the, the warmth of a candlelit night, you know, something handmade. I think that was kind of like what we were very attracted to. You know, create a universe that felt very rich in texture that, that had its own history, you know, just like the, you know, the universe of, of, of Harry, obviously. And so for me, when I took that away, I absolutely love their references, and I was no, I, I didn't want to kind of stay away from, stray away from that. But what I felt, uh, and I guess that's where I, I, the first thing that I proposed to them is that a lot of the references that they had were essentially created in two D. They were two D mediums. If you're thinking of, of uh, uh, shadow plays, uh, if you're thinking of very kind of stylized graphical look, generally they work on planes. You know, you'll, you'll have your your cloth, then you'll have your you know puppets behind it. And essentially what you see is the actual projected shadow onto a flat plane. And as much as it is extremely magical uh, uh, because of its, the way the technique, uh, it is something that was not, uh, something that was hard for us to really um, uh, use uh, for this sequence. Um, and so what I wanted to, to introduce is, you know, cameras, dynamic uh, movements. Uh, it was, I thought it was very important that we wouldn't lose the flow of the, the, the cinematic language that the movie establishes before and after uh, the sequence. And so it was very much about let's just embrace all of those uh, references and all these techniques, but let's try to recreate that uh, extremely bold look, but in, uh, in, a, in a volume, in space, which obviously opened a huge amount of challenges um, because as, as, as much as a lot of these looks work very well in profile. Uh, as soon as your camera starts navigating within within the space, uh, obviously you're you're starting to in, to to introduce multiple angle uh, on these on these characters and these scenarios, and and the lighting is therefore needed to ever change. And so, in some ways, it allowed us to really go wild and experiment with and and go I, I hope beyond. Some of the references that we're using and created something that ended up being uh, in itself fairly original because we we took obviously uh, we, we stayed close to the um, to the nature and the essence of what we liked so much but we tried to reintroduce it into a very very different technique mm-hmm. um, so that was one of the one of the um, the elements I mean I, I introduced you know we introduced a, a lot of uh, Asian and Far East uh, puppetry shadow puppetry which extremely beautiful and beautifully detailed and intricate in their design and have got this uh this again this very handmade feel to them which influenced a lot the the design of the character which are very much like uh, wooden puppets so articulated wooden puppets and i think finally in terms of the the, the animation style if the, the performances if you like you know i was uh, i've always been a, a very big fan of you know kab- classic and kabuki japanese theater and performances and that was that was i thought a, a, a great way to potentially take the audience on this kind of journey and, and not use as much as we like we like to use cameras and somehow kind of realistic lighting to to the scene uh, i wanted to kind of get away from cuts and you know avoid you know uh, yes using framing to tell the story but not necessarily uh you know take the, take the audience away from what they were looking at at any point. So create a, a, essentially create a sequence that felt like one single shot and almost something that just really unfolds in front of you and you can just sit back and, and just take it in. And, and I think, you know, that mixed with obviously um, 
you know, Hermione's voice and, and the way she kind of like delivers, beautifully delivers that text, it kind of takes us, transports us in a, in a kind of a different place, really, uh, which kind of worked really well, I think, together. Yeah, I, I think you're really right about how fluid it feels. There's one part in particular that stands out to me where Jeff is collecting the second brother and what looks like a wall sort of suddenly turns into his cloak and he picks up the brother. Um, yeah. I mean, those transitions, they're all really smooth. No, I was, I was going to say, I think there is something so inherently exciting about being constantly surprised, uh, you know, by where things are going. And, you know, like, the, you know, Escher or Dali, where you have, you know, artists who create a landscape or an image uh, that is can be seen so many different ways. I think there is, you know, when that is actually put into motion and you're, you're building up expectation and then you just completely shatter them or, you know, take that this expectation and, and, and drive them in a completely different way. And I think there is something very satisfying about that because you're constantly embracing what's coming at you and it's ever changing. And I think that, you know, I was always kind of using the idea of a, a theater stage where, you know, they'll, they'll be able to do so much with one set. They will light it on the left and create a very small pocket of, of intimate interaction between two actors. And then suddenly they will brightly light the rest of the set and suddenly we are in a different place and then take the light away and write another uh, light to the right and then suddenly we feel like we are on the on a, on a lakeside or on the balcony. Or, and I think that alone is so powerful because we are the audience with the right amount of taking away the information but giving you enough to make out the rest, what, what exists in negative space and what exists in the shadows and, you know, the, the, the few, the little information you get, you build so much out of it. Uh, you project so much out of it. And I think, you know, using the viewer's imagination to fill the blank, there's just nothing more powerful than that. And so in that sense, using the expectation of the audience to constantly build and rebuild the scene is certainly something that uh, we were very, very excited to do, you know. Yeah. Can you talk about how you went about visualizing death, the character in particular? Because, you know, it's such a complex idea and we've seen that represented on screen in many different ways. Um, but it's done really interestingly here. Yeah, I mean, it, 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 it's certainly kind of like a, a uh, it, it's a character who has many, many iterations. We, you know, we, we certainly looked at uh, um, a lot of references and, and, and seen what's been done and what would be kind of a... Uh, appropriate here and there's also so many characters linked to death and linked to the dark side uh, in the Harry mythology in the Harry Potter mythology that we also had to be very uh, wary that none of these characters would uh, feel like it was one of their own or, or the same if you like the same kind and I think that this is where potentially we went for something that was maybe more traditional in a way that we have a a, a, a skeletal, you know, a, a skeleton structure to it, to the character. But I think it was very important that there was like an overlooming, that it was like a, a, an ethereal, uh, otherworldly quality to to death. And I think that went very much so, less in its look maybe, but more in its in its motion, in its movement, in the way it is so it is so established, it's so slow. You know, the way the cloth is floating behind him, just give it an, a, a, a charisma, give it a, an, an amplitude, which is which defines the character itself, you know, uh, very, very well. And, and again, it was very much about his movement. When I was talking about 
uh, you know, Japanese uh, uh, kabuki theaters is very much about, you know, you, you, the, the movements are, are very paced, very slow, and then you lock the characters into these vignettes, these positions, which are suddenly, a, a, it's a tableau of this moment. It just creates story beats, but in, they're all interlocked. But then you take the moment to suddenly, you know, to take the scene, to understand the, the character and their silhouettes, and then you take it away and, and, uh, and go to the next kind of vignette. And death, death in itself was very important that he had this, you know, arc, you know, arched kind of back. He would be kind of looking, you know, looming over the characters. But in the same time, was very precious and very kind of uh, uh, very paced with his hands. And we worked a lot on the hands. Uh, so it was not so much about, you know, obviously, we, we put a lot of care in designing the character, but it, it was the character and the, the movement and the cloth and the, 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 the movement and the performance, I think, kind of completed it. We we went through, you know, it was also very important that the characters felt articulated, uh, and that was, you know, you know, around the idea of the the, the, the wooden um, puppets, uh, and so that was another kind of really interesting constraint that we had because we needed the pieces uh, for them to kind of look that they would be, you know, locked into each other and 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 give us this great frame to work with. So again, it was just trying to mix a lot of like exciting elements that we'd either found along the way or, you know, and, and figuring out the, you know, the greatest way to kind of put it together. But it, it is, it's the magic of the animators and, you know, the, the character designers all kind of like coming together and just elevating this idea, you know? Right. And, you know, you mentioned how you didn't want to necessarily recreate characters that we've already seen. Um, but there definitely are some similarities between Death and Voldemort. I mean, they're both these mm-hmm. morbid creatures with, or creatures, morbid characters with sort of dark flowing robes. I mean, did you pull from him at all? And, and was there sort of foreshadowing that you had in mind? Anything along the lines of that? Sure. I, I, don't, I don't, I think there is because of the essence of the, or, yeah, the essence of the character is obviously very, very similar. They're very similar. They're very close, you know, because they exist in this kind of darker realm. Uh, I think they also have this extremely measured, you know, they're very measured. They're very kind of like, you know, everything is extremely calculated in the way they move. They're, they're, they're not, uh, uh, there will be, you know, their, their movements are very similar in that way, I think. But I don't think we were trying to kind of establish a link between the two. I think it, it definitely kind of work in a, you know, in a in a world of darkness that is that is clever, is cunning. It is not. It is not just those those creatures are intelligent. Uh, and I think this is where we wanted to kind of like have a have a death character that was extremely aware and layered, and would be kind of the fact that it was it would it it let itself you know to be fooled or to be taken advantage by these three characters is is just makes it makes the stakes even more even greater and i think this is where we're kind of like trying to position that character which i think you know the more to some extent is is there is a little bit of that in there yeah and you know this animated sequence it's so unlike anything that we've seen in the potter films why animate this particular portion and it's so different visually from anything along the lines of that i mean going into this did you have the mindset that you wanted it to be very different from this world that we already know? Yeah, I, I think so. And and obviously that the uh, it's this incredibly creative and bold and brave move from the filmmakers, you know, from David and and the producers to to feel you know so comfortable and so uh, you know able to trust the fan to say, hey, we're gonna we're gonna do this scene 
and just take it somewhere that it's never been before. You know, I've I've kind of come more as the instrument. Uh, you know, I've, I'm facilitating. You know, the the in you know, creating the visuals. But you know, initially their idea you know came from them, and I think they were certainly trying to figure out. You know, in a world that is so fantastical, you know, that moment in the story needs to feel extra special, extra different. And I think you know when you when you when you see the complete the completed movie. I think that there is an obvious need for that break in the storytelling or, or, or breaking the storytelling format at that stage in, 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 the, in the story. And I guess by, by that, I mean, is, is um, when, uh, when, you know, when uh, uh, it, it's, we need, you know, Ron, you know, Harry, Ron and Hermione almost need to find that refuge. And they're kind of coming together. It's it, it, that scene just, just like us, the audience, it just makes them, like kids again, that we kind of gather around, you know, the, the fireplace before bedtime or something and, you know, listen to a grand or grandma or an adult telling them kind of magical stories and fairy tales. I think there is a moment where you want this scene to feel warm and, and comforting and, and, and but, but familiar, you know, and I think kind of Hermione creates that for all of us, you know, the, the, the actors and, I mean, you know, um, uh, Harry and Ron and us. And I think, you know, her confident, warming voice just really kind of feel like it's transporting us to a different place. And I think that was the intention uh, of the filmmaker, for sure. You know, that's, and, you know, the reference for the, for the fireplace is something that I was always I was kind of re- referring to because it's, for me, it was very much about, guys, we need to feel like we're looking at the shadows, the sh- you know, shapes on the wall, like the shapes are kind of changing and moving along, you know, the living room wall as the, the, you know, the flame kind of flickers them and, and animates them. And I think that we want to be going back to that place. And hopefully that's what that scene does. You know, hopefully just it's a, it's a very clean break that says, hey, we're going to take you somewhere different. And then you go back into the movie. For me, I think what, what really helps the transition, and hopefully it is, it, it feels fairly similar, is that we're, we're, we're still moving with, uh, like I was saying before, with a the camera. There is still an... Uh, you know, a feel for, uh, it, it, it is a world. It is not just something that is an illustration that is flat or, you know, pages of a book. It is, it is very much something that it has got its own, you know, universe and atmosphere. And so in that, I think it's, you know, it feels like we can, we dive into it for a little moment and then we just jump out of it. And again, I think with the pace of the movie, uh, it works, it works kind of well, I think. Absolutely. And, you know, it's interesting to me, too, is this particular segment stands out because it is so different visually and and it's a really special moment in this film and the series as a whole. But narratively, it's sort of it's crucial to the way that Harry and Ron and Hermione ultimately end up defeating Voldemort. I mean, did you feel a sort of pressure to get the narrative elements right of this and, and really explaining to people what the Deathly Hallows are? I think there's always there's always I think the pressure was more to create a a moment uh, in 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 such a beloved and and scrutinized and 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 owned uh, by you know a, a franchise or series you know these movies have been so loved and so well done and uh, I think it was it was very much making sure that 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 scene within the entire arc of the Harry Potter saga would 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 be integ- integral part that it would play you know a clear. Uh, or, or, you know, into that, you know, in terms of its, if its meanings and in terms of like, you know, where it's kind of leading into. Uh, but at least that it felt like very much part of the mythos. 
And, you know, in terms of how it echoes the end, in terms of how it, you know, becomes a, a, a greater part uh, within self by the way people are doing, uh, are bringing interpretations. I think, again, this is the film, the filmmakers have been the keeper of that. Uh, and, and they've done a, a fantastic job at it, you know, because it has been very, very consistent. Um, there's always something about, you know, making such a, taking such a departure in, in, in so late into the cycle of, of, you know, a franchise like this where, uh, you wary of of, uh, of the reception just because sometimes it becomes a bit self-indulgent. And I think, you know, or as long as uh, it stays focused at the service of the story, which I think the, the filmmakers were extremely on top of that, it feels kind of like, you know, it was all, that was always a through line. There was always something to be just discovered in it that would kind of pay off. And I think, as, as you say, it really does pay off. So Yeah. And, you know, speaking of the filmmakers, you mentioned that the director, David Yates, was involved in this process. What sort of feedback did he give you? And was J.K. Rowling involved as well? So unfortunately for me, J.K. wasn't involved. But I, was, I worked extremely closely with, with obviously, David Yates. Uh, David Heyman was, was also extremely involved in, in every, every conversation we had and all the meeting we had. Uh, David Barron as well and Stuart Craig. I mean, as you can imagine, also they were extremely busy, kind of shooting the two movies back to back. So it was it was quite an enterprise. And so you know, I, I think from from the moment that they decided to to trust us and to really collaborate with us, it was it was commissioned work from someone they really wanted to work with and a, a team that they wanted to kind of embrace. And and so fairly early into the process of starting to pre-visualizing the sequence uh, that we're kind of getting really deep into shooting. So very quickly, we kind of got, kind of let go a little bit for better or for worse, but it was, uh, which was uh, extremely uh, humbling from them because that, I think they were very trusty and I think we've, we've understood tonally what we wanted to do. And so we ended up, uh, it was kind of roughly a six months production on the, on the sequence. And I remember kind of showing showing the sequence to them at the very end, and they'd not seen very much of it uh, when it was kind of like finished. Uh, and they all really, really liked it. But it was this moment of uh, uh, uncertainty <laughs> when we kind of like finally presented it to them. But they're they're the best collaborations, um, you know, are the one where you're you're embracing each other's uh, point of view and artistry and and trust each other, and and you know, go into this collaboration with people that you you really want to uh, to inspire and get inspired by so you know it, i was i was very fortunate to be working with them to be honest with you it was it was a, an extremely pleasant process throughout you know given the size of the project it felt very intimate and very personal and because they are so they are so close to the material they've been so close to the material for so long you know they own it so well and and they're the, the keeper of it so yeah so the the process was was early on you know more intense and but that's not you know that's not um, something which is it, it's some, it happens fairly often where, you know, obviously they get busy, so we get on with it and, uh, and then go and present it. But they've always been extremely close to it and, and, uh, and, the, and the keeper of that, that's, you know, the meaning of it, making sure it becomes a, a, a very much part of the fabric of the movie. That's great. That's awesome, Ben. Is there anything else that comes to mind, you know, about your experience on the film or the actual look of this sequence? Not really. I mean, I, you know, there are some probably some technical things that I could go through, but that's probably not very interesting to you guys, you know, but it's overall, it was kind of like, it's, it's very much, you know, how we all kind of sat down and kind of decided to work together within two weeks. And that was kind of a, 
one of these, uh, or at first for me, unheard thing where you go like, oh, those things kind of must take, you know, forever to put together. And, and it was just a, this kind of very smooth process because they were so comfortable with, you know, their understanding of the material at that stage, I think, or so late in the cycle that it was just time to have, you know, fun and explore the material. And, and I think that it shows in the finished piece for me and how it kind of, it's locking so well in the movie that, you know, David, Bar you know, David Yates, David Heyman, and, and Stuart were, there was that this kind of greater understanding and, and that's been a fantastic experience, you know, and, and, and obviously the, the, the team of people that kind of came on board and made it possible because like I was saying, you know, the transformation of the transfer between an idea that is kind of based in 2D and translating that in 3D was, was a, was a great challenge. And, and I think, you know, they all kind of, they all kind of like delivered something extremely magical. So. You know. Well, thank you again. I so, so appreciate it. Um, I think this is going to be really awesome, and, and I'm really happy you were a part of it. Yeah, well, thank you so much for inviting me, and I uh, hope, uh, hope you get uh, all, all what, you're, what you're looking for. The, uh, the movie, I think, is going to be really great. Can't wait. I can't wait. Yeah, yeah no, we're all really <laughs> excited to see it. That's Absolutely. like all Mark and I have been thinking about lately. I know, I know, <laughs> so. I know. It's so exciting. It seems that I've kind of done the evolution for the you know the people that were connecting with the movies are kind of growing up and getting that movie for them which is really great super cool yeah yeah no it's it's been really cool to see how it's evolved and um and yeah i we loved your work on it and glad that we got to do this thank you so much thank, thank you. you ben thank you bye-bye we're almost there one more episode uh for the harry potter film series coming up next week is deathly house part two but we're not done yet. We got Cursed Child coming your way, and we got Fantastic Beasts and Where to Find Them. So uh, you still got more of EW Binge left. Um, thanks for listening. Subscribe. Leave us a review. Uh, tweet us at Mark Snedeker. Or at C. Molly Smith. Or email us at binge at EW.com. And we'll see you guys next week for the big finale. Bye.